Welcome to the 15th instalment of Guido Talks. That's right, we're back for another season. Recess is over, Parliament's back, and politics is back in a big way. So I'm joined once again by founder and editor of Guido Forks, Paul Staines, and reporter Christian Cowby. My name's Tom Harwood, and we're going to be going over the last week in politics, the last week in stories of Guido Forks, and chatting about all of the big stories. So without further ado, let's kick off with one of the large stories this week, and that was a resignation. Christian, can you talk us through this? Uh, We're all back at work, but one person who isn't is uh, Jonathan Jones, who resigned as the government's legal advisor over the biggest row of the week, the internal market bill, uh, which uh, the government have admitted in the House of Commons does uh, technically break international law in a very specific and limited way. Uh, so Jonathan Jones uh, quit over the uh, that debate, and he is the what the the, the sixth uh, permanent secretary. Uh, they don't seem very permanent at the moment uh, to have gone under Boris Johnson after. Uh, cabinet office, foreign office, home office, uh, justice and education. Uh, but uh, funnily enough, uh, we and our readers are not mourning the loss of uh, Remainer stalwarts from uh, the government that much. No, it's interesting. We put up this graphic of all of the faces that have gone from Whitehall now and it's when when you set it out like that when you see the faces when you see all these people it does it does really feel quite seismic actually there's been a big reorganization of the way that Whitehall works and that's only going to pay dividends in my view uh, in the next few years but everybody's um, saying it's seismic but actually uh, there was an institute for government which is hardly a Brexit fan club had some uh, charts out that show uh, under Blair and Cameron, quite a lot of permanent secretaries went in the first year as well. Maybe not as many, and maybe not for the same reasons, but the press is making out it's some kind of major explosion. It always happens when there's a new administration. And the main thing will be the proper civil service reforms coming down the road if Cummings and uh, Boris and the new uh, uh, Chief Cabinet Office Secretary uh, have their way. So this is very much a, a, a small amuse-bouche before the uh, proper Whitehall reforms that we're all looking forward to. Absolutely, and it can't be the case that you have a civil service that is actively working against the government, that is is signed up to deliver the agenda of. I mean, it's, it, you're, you're never going to have cohesive government if you have a, a civil service that is actively opposed to the agenda of the government. So it, it, it does make sense. But actually, there was, a, there was another story on this, on this Brexit theme. Um, beyond the internal market bill, beyond the resignations, um, there's actually a big bre- Brexit win this week. Um, and, and Paul, I wonder if you could tell us what that is. Well, the good news is it's confirmed today, today's Friday, that we have a free trade deal with Japan. You know, one of the three, I think, third biggest economy in the world by GDP. And it was muted that we wouldn't get as good terms as the EU got with Japan. Well, it seems we've got good, perhaps even better. I wait the fine print. We were not expecting this to come so soon. So it's a welcome bit of good news. And uh, we're... The team round Liz Trust were pretty confident the deal was going to happen. 
but we were given indications it was going to happen towards the end of the month. So early announcement. Apparently, they agreed the deal over Zoom. How's that? Amazing. 21st century government. And I remember in the referendum campaign when all of the Remainers were sort of saying, we've just signed this deal with Japan. You're never going to get anything close. You're never going to get as good a deal. You never... And actually, this deal goes further and, and more thoroughly than the EU's deal with Japan by all of the indications that we've seen so far today. So I, it's, it's, it's a big, big sort of success story for the Department of International Trade, which has sort of had all these bad stories recently about sort of things being held up over cheese or whatever. Um, and actually, it seems like that the, 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 the problems have gone through. Uh, a, a government that is negotiating for one country rather than 28 has been able to get past these sort of hang-ups and actually uh, push through a more, a more liberal deal, a more comprehensive deal uh, than anything the EU achieved. It's quite important, quite important for a number of reasons, particularly as you think about the investment that Japan has made in the UK, uh, the car industry, a lot of high-tech investment from Japan. Now, when the European Union is thinking about maybe putting tariffs on cars and the deal falling through, remember we won't have tariffs on Japanese cars. It's quite, and Japan uh, right, it's quite, drives on the right side of the road as well, so that's that's great. It's, it's quite a new Liz Trust, and uh, every time there's rumours about the reshuffle, uh, commentariat seem to love placing Liz Trust at one of the more precarious ministers. But I, I honestly think she's probably, in terms of delivery, one of the most competent ministers in in government at the moment. It's a massive victory, uh, according to officials I was talking to this morning. The roadmap now is they they wanted japan they want australia they then want the eu in the middle of october and following that they want a rollover deal sorting with the eea and turkey and that is sort of the the roadmap for the rest of 2020 uh, but they are working very diligently behind the scenes i was told that they're now up to 70% rollover deals of ter- in terms of volume of trade and in terms of uh, countries, they are over the 50% mark now. Uh, so they really are steaming on with it. And uh, as I said in the article this morning, number 10 really hoping that this gets the minds focused and, and gets the Brexit project back on the rails after the shaky week of uh, PR they've had this week. And they have had a shaky uh, week of PR this week because, of course, we've had the uh, publication of the Internal Market Bill, which is that really controversial piece of legislation because it it includes, it's a very, it's a comprehensive piece of legislation because it includes lots of different elements to it. But one of them is a mechanism for maintaining unfettered trade within the countries of the United Kingdom in the event of a no-deal Brexit, giving ministers the power to ensure that there's unfettered trade between Great Britain and Northern Ireland in the event of a no-deal Brexit. And of course, some people argue, not least the Northern Ireland Secretary Brandon Lewis, that this is in contravention of international law. And so this is a very um, controversial piece of legislation, but one that the government seems to be sticking to. And it was very interesting seeing Michael Gove pop up in the airwaves on Thursday this week uh, to, to slap down the EU's suggestion that the UK must sort of rewrite or ditch 
the bill in order to continue talks and, and the government's simply not going to do that. Calgi, can you tell us a bit about this, uh, this EU statement that came through on Thursday? Yeah, in, I mean, in terms of diplomatic statements from the EU, it was pretty serious. Uh, they uh, said it was an extremely serious violation of the withdrawal agreement and of EU law. They said it, it undermined trust and puts at risk the ongoing future relationship negotiations, although they didn't uh, actually give that full ultimatum. Uh, and said that the, the bill essentially has to be withdrawn and they, they reminded uh, the government of the legal obligations in the text, which essentially mean the EU could uh, even sue the government. And uh, we're now at this, at this complete logjam where uh, the EU is saying the bill has to be withdrawn. The government has said absolutely no chance. Uh, and now we've just got to try and work out sort of who who blinks first and speaking to people last night uh in in government there was not a uh minutiae of of uh entertaining the idea of 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 conceding to any of the eu's demands on this bill so the government are are being very bullshy about it Yes, and one of the really funny things in the uh, government sort of legal position is that they state that Parliament's sovereign, Parliament can pass whatever laws it wants to, it doesn't have to sort of bend the EU's will on this. And one of the, one of the cases, one of the legal cases they cite in terms of justifying that position is the Gina Miller case back from uh, 2017 when Gina Miller sued the government, said that Parliament was sovereign, that Parliament had the ultimate arbitration over treaties, whatever. And that legal judgment that had the unanimous support of the Supreme Court is one of the sort of pillars of the government's legal defence with regard to passing this piece of legislation uh, that would, of course, protect the internal market of the UK. Uh, so I think that's a, that's a marvellous piece of sort of irony there, where, where Gina Miller once again, of course it was her, her court case that meant that the executive couldn't uh, pass the sort of um, the, the withdrawal agreement alone, it had to have the consent of Parliament, that meant that Theresa May's deal failed. Thanks to Gina Miller, the ERG was empowered and Theresa May's deal failed. And now once again, Gina Miller comes into the rescue of the government unintentionally. It's a marvellous piece of irony. Um, but Paul... In the final analysis, though, uh, there's nothing the uh, EU can do because international law requires one side... Well, it requires both sides to agree on arbitration. In the final analysis, unless you're going to send gunboats up the Thames... There's not a lot that can be done if one country just won't play by the rules. We've seen this in the past, you know, Russia and stuff like that. Now, I don't think it's a good idea for Britain to join the list of rogue countries that ignore international law. But the only thing that the other countries can do is basically realistically put sanctions on the UK. Now, it was, uh, there was a funny thing today where, uh, uh, funny thing in the week where Adam Bolton uh, pushed Charlie Faulkner uh, on this issue. And Charlie Faulkner eventually concedes, you know, after saying, oh, they could do sanctions, they would, they would uh, they could fine us, etc., that there is nothing the EU can do without summoning the Navy out. And the EU doesn't have an army quite yet, yeah. thankfully. Yeah. Yet, yet. <laughs> it's not quite the state that it wants to be. 
I mean, give it a few years. Um, <laughs> no, but that, that's probably where we should leave the EU. It's amazing that this issue has sort of pro- cropped back up into the public consciousness in such a big way. But moving beyond that, there's a classic piece of uh, BBC News that, that did very well on the site in terms of number of views this week. Calgary, can you talk us through this? Yeah, of course, this was uh, unfortunately not moving too far away from the Europe issue because this was Katie Adler, who was the BBC's Europe editor, uh, and she did a, a thread of a thread of uh, tweets on the Brexit negotiations back in April in which she called Michael Gove delusional. And uh, the BBC executive complaints unit uh, found that she did not quote him entirely accurately. Uh, and uh, it, she went beyond the guidelines license for professional judgments. Uh, uh, so, you know, um, what, it's good to see the, the BBC are, uh, in some senses, uh, reining in their employees, uh, but uh, it's no more than a slap on the wrist, and uh, Katie Adler uh, remains Europe editor. <laughs> Well, yeah, it was it was only sort of a partially upheld complaint. And again, I think this speaks to the new sort of ethos of the BBC, which is to sort of talk a very good game on impartiality, to talk a good game on, I don't know, for example, uh, comedy on the TV. But then when it actually comes to what's going to change, the reforms seem to be a very, very paper thin. And it seems Did anyone new... see Frankie Boyle last night, Thursday night? where he did a soliloquy to camera saying, this kind of comedy, left-wing comedy, you won't be seeing on the BBC anymore. <laughs> I was like, oh. I mean, it was pretty, pretty atrocious. I mean, they were attacking Starmer for not being left-wing enough, for Christ's sake. This is the thing. This is the idea of BBC balance, isn't it? You know, oh, we attack Labour and we attack the Tories. Yeah, but you attack them both from the left. That's not impartial. <laughs> if you say, yeah, Tony Blair's a war criminal, therefore we've done our Labour-Tory balance. I don't think that that really stacks up to any sort of scrutiny. And this, and this is the fundamental issue with the organisation. I, I mean, Frankie Boyle is a great example. He used to be funny. He used to push the boat out. He used to sort of have this, this whole no-holds-barred approach and, and sort of would, would, would not have any qualms in offending everyone. And now his comedy is so much more muted, so much more woke, so much more boring, quite frankly. Uh, and it's a big shame. And I think that there does need to be a shake up in this, but we shouldn't let sort of um, uh, Tim Davies uh, sort of PR override the fundamental issue. And this is, I think, the new strategy of the BBC. They'll sort of say something, they'll throw a little bit of red meat to Tory backbenchers to say, oh, look at, look at this, we're sort of sorting out comedy. But, and then they'll use that as an excuse to say, therefore, you shouldn't take away the licence fee. And we shouldn't, we Listen, shouldn't bend to that. It would take quite a lot of red meat to placate me. I think Lewis Goodall's head on a silver plate would be the one. <laughs> before I believe that they're going to sort their uh, bias out, frankly. I think, I think some Tory MPs are um, optimistic over Tim Davey. I think they appreciate the, uh, the scraps that he's thrown them, but that is very much tied to future reforms coming down the road in terms of the licence fee settlement, as well as sorting out the bias issue. And I think, essentially, we, we might now be truly at a crunch point for the BBC where they have 
four or five years to really, really change things, turn things around, uh, or they're beyond saving. And let's be real, it doesn't matter if a news organisation has a bias, as long as they're not funded by tax. So, I mean, it's, it's, it's perfectly fine for the BBC to, to sort of have a view in the same way that Channel 4 does and Sky News does, um, as long as we don't have to pay for them. And I think that is quite exciting in terms of the, the TV landscape. And this is something that we might come on to a bit later. But first, let's focus back on Westminster, which was swarmed by the great unwashed this week. Um, Paul, what happened um, just on Thursday with Extinction Rebellion? Well, on Thursday, uh, uh, Extinction Rebellion decided to do a FEM-style process, you know, FEM of the... Uh, uh, European protest, feminist protest group, and they uh, went topless, I'm watching my language here nowadays, went topless and padlocked their heads with bike D-locks to the railings outside Parliament. It looked like pretty kinky as seen from a sadomasochistic to some some degree. They were wearing black. Um, You know, they made some good points, I thought, some of them. (laughs) Some of them made good points, others less so. But yes, I'm not sure it helps the cause, but it gave us a good laugh. Right, it was, not, it was funnily enough, one of our more read stories yesterday. <laughs> funnily. And absolutely, but this is the kind of protest that you'd expect that seems sensible and reasonable in a democracy. You know, okay, people are taking their tops off and, 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 and locking themselves to railings outside Parliament. Cool. They're not blocking ambulances now. They're not smashing windows again. They're not sort of doing the sort of horrendously illegal stuff that was being seen earlier, stopping printing presses, whatever. This is the kind of thing, sure, everyone's talking about it still. They made their point and they haven't had to smash any windows. I think this is exactly what Extinction Rebellion should be doing and fair enough. Yes. Um, it's, it's a good yeah, That's a good laugh. That's what we want. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Um, but there's something that wasn't a very good laugh because one of their, one of the Extinction Rebellion's spokespeople ended up on the Today programme earlier this week after they blocked printing presses last weekend. And he came up with this marvellous new quote that is, there is no room for disagreement. Towards Extinction Rebellion, if they cast you as some sort of climate denier, you're not allowed to have a view. But of course, to Extinction Rebellion, just about everyone's a climate denier. This government that has reduced CO2 emissions by 25%, more than any other G20 country in the last 10 years, is apparently climate denying. Just about everyone, even people, like, I, I, think, I think all of us would accept the reality that, um, that, that, that more CO2 is being emitted and that has a warming effect on the planet. I mean, but, but, but to, to suggest that anyone who has a qualm with the extremist suggestions from Extinction Rebellion, that we should get rid of all CO2 emissions in the next four years and, and, and take all of the economic um, impact that that would uh, that that would hit us with, to suggest that any qualm with that is is not a legitimate view to hold is extreme and worrying. And I think everyone can see through this. It's one of the most bonkers and uh, sort of impossible movements to to grapple with because they are so uh, hell bent on uh, whatever form of illegal protesting they want to get a policy 
which is objectively impossible. I mean, they may as well be campaigning for the for the sea to become pink uh, for all the good it would do, because it, it, there is absolutely no way unless every single car is banned, planes are gone and we ration electricity down to about two days a week that we can get to net zero. And also as a country, if we, even if we went to net zero and destroyed everyone's standard of living in the next five years, it will make a blind bit of difference to the global uh, output. Uh, and of course, you know, even Corbyn's concession of, I think, 2030 is essentially uh, climate denying in the eyes of the uh, extinction rebellion. Exactly. They say listen to the scientists. And yet I don't think there's a single respected scientist who says that 2025 is in any way a, 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 a reasonable projection for this sort of extreme uh, decarbonification of the economy. I mean, it's, it's, just, it's just a ridiculous, ridiculous thing. And actually, there have been one or two people who've walked away from the movement because of this. There's the, uh, there was the activist who went up um, against Andrew Neil a few months ago, Zion Lights, who's now become a nuclear lobbyist, saying, yes, extri- uh, Extinction Rebellion's demands of decarbonisation by 2025 are nonsense. And actually, if we want to get anywhere close to, to becoming a, a, a sort of net zero economy by 2050, we need to build a lot of nuclear power stations. That's a sensible solution. If Extinction Rebellion was saying that, I think that we'd have a lot more time for them because that's actually proffering a solution rather than just saying, oh, we should absolutely get rid of all the carbon immediately and anyone who disagrees is obviously some sort of climate-denying crank. Uh, no, Extinction Rebellion of the Cranks. Return to the specific point. I mean, this protest where they blocked off the newspapers obviously went down very badly with all the newspapers, including The Guardian, which wasn't blockaded. And it, it brought out weird... Um, it, it split the Labour Party because some of the Labour Party were, were smiling and like uh, Dawn Butler and Diane Abbott that um, the Murdoch press was uh, stopped from going out. But the more sensible elements of the Labour Party, obviously, were horrified that uh, they were blocking the, the freedom of the press. And it did backfire on that. Yeah, and, and I think it was interesting that Keir Starmer took a couple of days, or at least a day and a half, to come out with a statement on that. It seems that the new leadership of the Labour Party want to sort of wait to see what the public thinks before they'll come out with a position. And that doesn't seem very much like leadership to me. Um, but Kalgi, there was someone who was arrested in the Extinction Rebellion protests this week. Um, and, and this made a bit of news. Can you tell us why? Yeah. Yeah, well, there was one of the uh, anti-Murdoch uh, Extinction Rebellion protesters <laughs> all turned out uh, to be a jihadi bride, mother of nine, uh, who <laughs> appeared in court this week. Uh, over the protest, but two years ago, it was alleged that she travelled to Syria in 2014 and married a London-born ISIS fighter uh, and is now a full-time terror suspect. Um, As far as I'm concerned, as most Extinction Rebellion protesters should be. Um, (laughs) But, you know, we were just amazed that, you know, we had this 45-year-old supporter of a a sort of medieval anti-democratic, evil, idealistic cult. Uh, who, Sorry, you're talking uh, about ISIS or Extinction, Extinction Rebellion. Rebellion? I'm not sure. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, you know, but each their own. 
Right, right. I mean, that, that sort of description does describe Extinction Rebellion quite well. I mean, they, they want to abolish Parliament, set up their own parallel Parliament that is tasked with one view. They want to bring us all back to the sort of dark ages, living in, cave, living in caves and eating moss. I mean, it's not all that different from the fascistic dictatorship that ISIS employed when they were running mm. half of the Middle East. Um, <laughs> the climate caliphates. <laughs> But I think we should move on from Extinction Rebellion because I'm sure they're enjoying us talking about their crazy cause so much. Um, back to COVID, which has been a dominant theme. Um, the government is trying to set up these sort of COVID marshals in a way that, 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 that sort of, um, I, think, I think Winston Churchill warned about in his 1945 election address, some sort of Stasi, some sort of, um, I don't know, enforcement mechanism across the country to make people comply. But, but here's the thing, the government haven't provided any money at all for this. There are these COVID marshals that are supposed to stand in every town and be, be, be paid about 30K a year. And yet the government's expecting this to come from local authority budgets. Um, what budgets? authority <laughs> budgets? Well, can't they just make traffic wardens multitask? So, you know, they could have a two-sided hat, yellow on the front, and, uh, <laughs> and, and COVID anti-yellow on the back. So, you know, just have two hats. It's a genuinely incredible policy because on the one hand, it is... A, a, incredibly authoritarian and nanny status and interfering you'll have these snivel sort of snivelling nose public <laughs> sort of public prefect telling you what side of the road to walk down on and on the other hand it's just naff and completely useless and everyone will ignore them uh, and I just can't get over the fact that that I you know I bet there will be stories of these people who don on a high-vis jacket for a few hours a day and end up on 30k a year. Uh, <laughs> astonishing. I don't think they're going to be able to, none of them will be hired. Who has the money? Local authorities don't have, but outside of Kensington and Chelsea, not a single council in the country has the money. It will them. be somewhere like Surrey or Hampshire. They'll find yeah. somewhere. Yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, Chris Whitty came out with a very worrying statement also, Calgi, um, in, the, in this new uh, number 10 press briefing, the first since the summer, um, where, where it suggested that he might cancel Christmas. What was all this about? <laughs> well, it's everything between... He essentially said that these new rules, the, the rule of six and the other clampdowns, are going to be in our uh, aspects of our lives all the way through to, I think, next spring. So, of course, the press immediately um, leapt on that because it, it sort of makes many families' usual Christmases impossible. We're going to have to have Zoom Christmases. Uh, but, of course, one of the things that the, the press have sort of missed out on, piece we ran on Friday, uh, is that this also affects uh, other major... Uh, public events, things like Remembrance Sunday, and they're sort of all up in the air. They're not sure how the usual cenotaph service is allowed to go ahead. And Bonfire Night as well is also going to be restricted. So in a way, Boris has cancelled Guido uh, and on our annual celebration. It's not a celebration, Seth. It's a, it's a feast of bigotry uh, against <laughs> where, where, where unjustly 
they commemorate the uh, the torture and murder. Well, actually, committed suicide of a freedom fighter. Well, talking of torture and murder, uh, torture and murder. Um, the Chinese ambassador uh, cropped up in the news this week, where we screen gabbed an unfortunate light of his <laughs> Paul. Paul, what happened on Twitter with the Chinese ambassador to the United Kingdom? Popped up is, uh, is, is a phrase that comes to mind <laughs> because, because he liked a, well, he denies liking, but uh, on Twitter he liked a uh, rather fruity video, which on a family website we had to obscure so they look like that kind of Japanese pornography you used to get in Japanese hotel rooms <laughs> <laughs> where everything was fixated out but he he basically had light on his public profile a uh, uh, Chinese girl in stockings masturbating a penis let's, let's not be around with the bush. her feet with her feet yes with her feet. he was beating around the bush I think uh, yeah, it, yes, it's push with a rum. Um, uh, after, after we called, no, actually, actually, the Sun also had the story, but we beat them to it. Um, the, 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 the image and the liking disappeared from his feed, and he came out with the whole chest up. We heard so many times, I was hacked. Whether his wife believes him or not is what I want to Amazing. Oh, well, I mean... I, it was a hell of an editing job, I can tell you that. It was one of the many pleasures of working at Guido. Amazing. I'm glad you pleasured yourself. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think that's just about all we have time for today. So um, thank you for, for joining me again this week, for kicking back this new series of, uh, of Guido Talks, Paul and Christian. Um, thanks for, for joining, and, and, and may many more of these come along. Cheers. Thanks for watching. Bye. Bye.